0: Women on the Line, produced at 3CR, acknowledges the people of the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the lands from which we broadcast. We pay respect to Elders past and present of the Kulin Nation and we recognise their unceded sovereignty. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Women on the Line, where national feminist current affairs program for community radio. Since 1986, Women on the Line has featured women and gender non-conforming people's voices on issues and commentary. The show provides analysis of contemporary issues uh, from a gendered perspective, as well as in-depth analysis by a range of women and gender non-conforming people around the continent and internationally. So we take a national perspective on feminist issues and we also have a rotating roster of producers and presenters, which is why every week you listen to a different voice. And I'm Scheherazade Blum. In the 1970s and 80s, fleeing repression against communism, migrants from Turkey built a thriving socialist movement in Melbourne. What did this movement do? Well, they organised. They organised not only their own communities, but migrant workers, supported political refugees, influenced unions, and also contributed to the global anti-imperialist struggle. And this was done via community building. Mainly in their or community centres, and leftist cultural organisations. These community centres and movements, or movement more broadly, were centred in the cities now gentrified inner north, so suburbs like Brunswick and Coburg. And all this history is in a recent article published in Jacobin, just a week ago now, at the end of January 2022. And here to tell us more about it and what we can learn from it is international human rights lawyer, researcher and activist, Edda Sayan. Her work focuses on policing, state violence, and anti-racism. And she's a visiting fellow at the Institute of Postcolonial Studies in North Melbourne. So welcome Edda to the show. You have written the article um, mm-hmm. for Jacobin, but I want to before we get into the article, I just want to ask, how did you come about writing this article and doing this research? So the research that I did for this
1: article is part of uh, my visiting fellowship at, at the Institute of Postcolonial Studies. Um, and I kind of came to do it because it's a project I've wanted to do for a very long time. So I kind of grew up in one of these community centres. So my dad was uh, very involved in organising in in one of the community centres. So he was, he came from Turkey in 1980 uh, after the military coup over there. And um, that kind of political sort of experience of growing up in these community centres is a big part of my own political education. Um, But there really isn't anything kind of written about these community centres, neither in English um, for a wider audience, nor even really in Turkish uh, among people within the community centres themselves. So that's kind of a gap that I've been thinking about for a long time. Um, I think there's a lot we can learn from that experience. Um, And I think it's just kind of a shame that in sort of retellings of left history in this city, there is so little kind of recognition of, of what radical migrants were doing, largely because that history remains tucked away in people's homes, in languages that are inaccessible to to most of the population. So um, I really wanted to kind of recover some of that lost history before it gets permanently lost um, and also dispel the kind of notion that migrants are somehow apolitical or, you know, subservient Um, because when you look at this history, you're actually seeing like a, a huge amount of militancy from migrant workers that, yeah, is sort of underrepresented, I think.
0: Uh, The second question that I wanted to ask just to set a bit of background, but I guess you you kind of go into this in your article as well, a bit about the history of before Turkey's socialists came to Melbourne. I guess there's two
1: kind of important historical things going on at the time. You've got obviously here this kind of growing ethnic rights movement made up of radical sort of leftist ethnic community organisations, including uh, FILEF, the Italian Communist Organisation, Um, the Greek Democritus League, uh, and a host of others. And they are at the time kind of mobilizing for what they called ethnic rights. So we're talking about better language services, interpreters, um, health and safety in the workplace, (laughs) compensation for workplace injuries, you know, all this stuff that we kind of take for granted now uh, that very much didn't exist back then. Um, And doing all that and also opposing the dominant state ideology at the time which was very assimilationist so making these demands of of white australia at the same time as kind of asserting a, a political identity as migrant workers um so that's what's kind of going on here meanwhile in in turkey you've got this growing left militancy so very much influenced by third world socialisms um the revolutions in cuba in in china Um, Albanian communism nearby. So you've got that kind of going on and emerging, particularly after 1968 at the same time as it's going on all over the world, obviously. Um, So that's what the context is in Turkey. And then you have the beginning of Turkish migration to this country in 1971. And so you have these people arriving, you know, from a part of the world where there's a growing left and arriving to be exploited um, in this country as migrant workers. So that's the kind of historical context in which these organisations start to be formed and, and start to become active.
0: The White Australia Policy stopped at some point around that yeah, time as well. <laughs> just,
1: just before, I mean, really yeah. just before, enab- to, which enabled, right, the, exactly. the start of Turkish yeah. migrants coming here. So, you know, they were, they were coming into very much an assimilationist culture
0: a lot of what the article talks about is that uh, a lot of the organising was centred around these community centres or dernek. I don't know, how do you mm-hmm. pronounce yeah. it? Yeah, <laughs> dernek. that's correct. <laughs> um, can you tell us about that? So, yeah, you've got, I guess,
1: um, by like the 1980s, you've got four radical community centres or derneks as we call them, dotted around Sydney Road and the northern suburbs that correspond to different Marxist tendencies and political movements in Turkey. Um, So just to give a flavour of what those are, you've got the Australian-Turkish Cultural Association in Richmond. They are loosely linked to the Soviet-oriented Communist Party of Turkey. Um, You've got the Maoists up on Sydney Road in the Victorian-Turkish Labourers Association. Um, Very nearby, the Union of Australian-Kurdish and Turkish Workers, which is linked to the People's Liberation Movement in Turkey. Um, And then the last one to form in 1986 um was one called the Halkevi, formed by activists from Turkey's revolutionary path, which is a bit more the Latin American, followed a bit more the Latin American kind of um, castroist left model. So you've got this rich kind of constellation of different different community organizations. Um, and they all have their own building and they're all you know very much kind of um sort of almost competing amongst one another for for people within the community. Um, and they largely kind of did very similar things. So they operated on sort of three fronts. Um, One is the kind of dealing with issues that arise as a result of being migrants. Um, Then the second is really dealing with workplace issues, so workers, workers' rights. And the third is political sort of solidarity with movements overseas and with Turkey. And what that kind of looks like is providing services. So a lot of that first Um, area of work involves providing interpreters, uh, Turkish language childcare, um, English language classes. Obviously, most people arriving without speaking English uh, help with refugee asylum applications uh, and immigration. So kind of providing the services that migrants need when they first arrive. Um, And then also using that as a basis for political action. So mobilising that community uh, in order to win win rights, including through, you know, sit, sit-ins in the immigration ministry, um, through kind of coordinated action with other other migrant groups. Um, and then connected to the kind of migrant rights area of work is catering to the social and cultural needs of the community who are largely excluded from mainstream Australian cultural life at the time through language and financial exclusion. So we're looking at a really kind of rich Uh, program of of culture and events, so concerts, uh, political theatre, dancing, music, Turkish language schools on the weekends, um, and also doing their own media, so producing newspapers. uh, They had a weekly community radio station on 3CR, actually, so it's good to be back (laughs) here. And and they did all of that. And, and sports, I mean, they had multiple sports teams. So, so it's a real, like, rich um, kind of package of activities. Um, and all of that is done with the knowledge that it's linked to a political project, right? It's not culture for culture's sake. It's culture linked to class struggle. Um, and, and then also doing actual class struggle in workplaces, right? So they supported um, their members when they went on strike and there were important strikes happening at the time in the Ford factory, of course. And a lot of the members of these organizations worked um, in the car industry, specifically at the Ford factory in Broadmeadows, but also the textile industry. So there's a strike at the Cortex factory uh, in Brunswick. um, And they're very active in supporting their members on strike. So they're there at the picket line they are singing and dancing at the barricades they're providing food they're providing childcare for workers on strike um, so there are a clear presence sort of in workplace organizing also because the unions themselves at the time aren't really doing a lot of that stuff they have no interest in catering to migrant workers they're not providing interpreters so you know the community centers were really filling in those gaps Um, And then there's the political solidarity work with Turkey, and that's a lot of what they do as well. Um, So providing kind of financial support to their movements back home, but also organizing um, the community here to oppose what's going on in Turkey and to try try and continue the struggle, the revolutionary struggle in Turkey.
0: When we talked about this in the past, and this kind of like stuck in my Mind. You were giving an example of the kind of solidarity, not only all the sort of transnational and mi- intra migrant solidarity work that they were doing, but also, um, for example, in the childcare centres, of one example where a stay at home mum would be paid to take care of other people's children. And that was just one aspect of the kind of movement that they were building.
1: So they had what were called childcare co ops. At the time, so there's one um, in Brunswick. There's one often, at, at, like linked to a uh, block of flats, right? So you've got a bunch of Turkish families who live in the Flemington Flats or the Fitzroy Flats, and you might have a housing, uh, sorry, a child care co-op um, where you know migrant workers who generally would leave their children with grandparents, uh, but can't because the grandparents are in Turkey, can leave them to be looked after kind of collectively. Um, And I think part of what that encapsulates is how a lot of the community centres, what they did, went beyond politics, right? They they combined family, friends, culture, uh, arts, with a political mission and a political vision for the future. Um, And I think that's one of the other things that, to me, distinguishes it uh, quite a lot from the types of things that I've been involved in. and I, and I think we need to see more of that in the kind of uh, Western left or whatever. But I think, um, yeah, what it, what it involves is basically a kind of cohesive wholeness to, to one's life. And, and a lot of the people who I spoke to as part of the research emphasised that for them the community centres were not like a job or a, a volunteer role. You know, they were their whole lives, their lives were structured around them. They were there before work, after work, on the weekends. Uh, It was where they saw their friends. It was where they had their birthday parties. It was where they had, you know, where they wrote the newspaper articles, where they organised the protests. It all happened within that one space. Um, And I think that's part of what is really compelling about it. Um, And I, there's... Um, a reference I make in the article, which I would encourage everyone listening to, to read, this amazing book by um, an author called Vivian Gornick called The Romance of American Communism. And she describes something similar in the Communist Party of America in you know, the 1920s and 30s as uh, the way she describes it as the wholeness or all in allness of life, right? So, like, all of life being encapsulated in this one sort of cohesive movement. But I think there's also, you know, it's it's important not to be too nostalgic and to idolize this too much because it comes at a huge cost. And the cost is people's personal, individual kind of aspirations, their you know, their, their sense of of maybe an individual self um, that gets sidelined in the pursuit of a collective project. Um and that intensity, you know, that, that requires the intensity of activity and and sacrifice that that requires, um, I think can have, can have negative consequences. And I think a lot of the people I interviewed, you know, reflecting back on it, they, 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 they are quite negative about a lot of aspects of it. And I think it's partly the result of having put your whole being into something and the expectation that comes with that degree of,
0: sacrifice and you were just listening to Edda Sayan speaking about migrants from Turkey's socialist movement in Melbourne in the 1970s and 80s so across these stolen lands now called Australia you have been listening to women on the line highlighting a range of gender non-conforming and women voices broadcast on the community radio network we well, i we'll go back to learning more about the history of a socialist movement built in Melbourne by migrants from Turkey with Edda Sehan. And now we'll talk about what happened to the movement, where is it at today, and what we can learn from what happened in the past.
1: There's one critique most reoccurring amongst the people I interviewed, which is that the community centres sort of failed to create lasting institutions. Yeah. And that's a big contrast to the more conservative um, community organisations which have still a very active newspaper. They have, you know, schools, many schools, Islamic schools that are run mm. by um, Turkish kind of more conservative groups linked to movements in Turkey. Um, they have influence within the consulate, obviously. Um, so, you, you know, they've, they've been able to kind of maintain Uh, an institutional structure that the leftist groups haven't. But I think that's not necessarily an individual failing. I mean, I think people see it as an individual failing. To me, it's more symptomatic of a broader decline in a class-based left politics. And they were victims of that just like any other organisation or union in this country or or generally in the West. Mm. Um, But I think there is maybe a valid critique in the emphasis on, individual like relationships between people and belief rather than maybe a kind of strategic vision, if -hmm. that makes sense. So a lot of the kind of disputes that you see within the community centre are really disputes between people, you know, personal disagreements rather than necessarily ideologically defined and argued differences in strategy.
0: There's a quote here, one (laughs) of the people that you were interviewing that said labour has no country. I don't know if you wanted to talk a bit about that and the kind of solidarities that that they were talking about.
1: So that was, yeah, one of the people I interviewed who was uh, someone who worked in the Ford factory in Broadmeadows and who was very involved in um, one of the community centres. So he said to us, labour has no country. Labour is labour everywhere. And so as socialists, we have to participate in the class struggle wherever we find ourselves. Um, And it's that kind of thinking that saw the community centres really engage in union politics, in workplace organising. And one of the things they did was um, set up a union school to educate Turkish workers in Turkish at Trades Hall um, in their kind of rights in Australia and how to organise their workplaces. Um, And then some of those people went on to organise strikes in their workplaces. So, you know, they were very much... um, aware of their duty as socialists to, um, and as migrant workers themselves to, to organise and participate in class struggle. Um, and I guess connecting to some of what we were saying before in terms of the differences with now, um, I think it's interesting to think about the ways that they understood their oppression as members of a global working class, right, that is uh, unable, forced out of their homes in Turkey, because of a system of global imperialism. So their oppression was not understood as some innate feature of being a specific ethnic identity, of being Turkish or even Kurdish, right? Um, They didn't say, I'm oppressed because I'm Turkish and my liberation is the recognition of my identity and culture. They said, I understand that my oppression is a result of a global maldistribution of power and resources, um, that must be abolished as a global system. Um, and what is that system? That is a system of capitalism and imperialism and how do we abolish it through class struggle and international solidarity. So that is the framework, right? And it's a very different framework to what we have now and it's something that I am always being very frustrated about with our uh, with generation, I think, um, which kind of sees anti-racism in apolitical terms, I think, in overly culturalist terms, so thinking about kind of ethnic or cultural associations or groups that are kind of that deal in music, dance, uh, costumes, food, that kind of thing completely outside of politics. And that to me is just a victory of state-led multiculturalism, right? That's exactly what they want. They want a ethnic rights movement. They want something like what was the ethnic rights movement to be reduced to a movement. That demands recognition for cultural difference over redistribution of material mm-hmm. assets and resources, mm-hmm. and that's exactly what they got. Um, and I think in, in especially in the online space, but also just in general, you get this really individualist form of kind of anti-racist politics where people don't have to join an organization or a political group they just have to work on themselves right so that's the project the project is inward self-reflection you know thinking about the lived experience it doesn't require joining an organization Mm. reading books about (laughs) theory it doesn't require anything beyond the individual because in this framework the popular framework that we have now racism is all about individual conduct behavior. It's not really a project of liberation. It's a project of individual advancement, right? Mm -hmm. It's not universal emancipation. It's us as people of color in this country gaining better recognition and not actually structurally changing anything. Um, So that's kind of what I am frustrated with in in our generation. And I think it's really interesting to think what we can learn from the kind of politics that these community centers were doing Um, which went beyond the individual to think about kind of racism in terms of of these broader structures of capitalism and imperialism. So one of the big focuses that they had was um, solidarity with anti-imperialist struggles in different parts of the world, Um, and that looked like solidarity with Chileans here who were suffering from a similar uh, fascist junta. Uh, to, to Turkey, it also looked like um, solidarity with Irish hunger strikers in Ireland. Uh, and I think one of the kind of examples of how far they were willing to go in terms of solidarity with other, other movements um, was that one of the people I interviewed was involved in uh, the H-Block Committee. So there were these committees set up all over, over the world to support uh, the hunger strikers Um, in Northern Ireland. So when the Queen came to visit in 1981, they were organising a protest, obviously, to protest the Queen's visit. Uh, And just before the protest, the police raided the houses of eight members of the HBOC committee, and that included two people from the Turkish, um, from the um, Union of Australian, Turkish and Kurdish workers. Um, So one of these people was, you know, had their house broken into by cops, pinned to the floor, accused of trying to assassinate the Queen, um, and eventually let go because they obviously had no evidence. But the whole point was to intimidate the protesters, obviously. Um, and it's interesting to me that after all of all of that, quite a, you know a significant targeting by police, and these are people who have you know escaped torture in Turkey. So it's no small thing to be arrested by cops and pinned to the floor. Um, and after that, they you know the organization came out and said we will continue the struggle in support of um, the anti-imperialist struggle in Ireland. So it's that, you know, it's again like that commitment to an internationalist vision of the world where it's not like something that we have now where you might say, well, that's their struggle and I can only be an ally to that struggle. It's actually saying this is our struggle because this system of imperialism victimises us all. So their struggle is my struggle and I'm willing to go this far for it. Um, So... I just want to share that example.
0: I'm interested in the ways in which people talked about settler colonialism and mm. and Aboriginal politics and rights. Yeah. yeah.
1: So at the time, obviously, the land rights struggle was a big part of um, the left uh, in this country and the these community centres were very aware of that and they came out to the land rights protests um, and they supported that. That struggle. I think they didn't have the language of settler colonialism that we have now. They understood um, Aboriginal people as victims of imperialism. Um, So thinking more through the lens of global imperialism of kind of the US and Britain and the empire um, and understanding the the Aboriginal struggle as um, one of kind of an anti-colonial struggle and supporting it on those grounds. Um, there was, interestingly, quite a lot of debate about like what that actually involves for them. So there, in some of the newspapers that I reviewed, there's articles saying, you know, we need to actually be doing more, we have more of an obligation to turn out for these um, protests and, and to actually go further than what we're doing. Um, and there were times when it came to a head with kind of state-led multiculturalism. So there was a project... Um, for the Bicentennial of the Australian Bicentennial, um, which one of the organisations participated in, but there was a big kind of debate about whether they should, because obviously commemorating the Bicentennial would be to, uh, you know, a, a, re- a rejection of Indigenous sovereignty, basically. Um, and so that was kind of debated at the time. And I think they they turned out for the land struggles, um, but they didn't really have, I think, a language to understand what to do beyond that, but they were aware that it was an issue. The people they were kind of learning from at the time were parts of the left here who were more open to engaging with these kind of ethnic organizations. So that was where they were getting kind of their information because they didn't really have access to, there, there wasn't like a big contingent of people who were able to speak English very well and engage with other groups. So They One of the things that people expressed to me quite a lot was that they actually didn't do enough engagement with other groups, and that was a function of their own inability to see beyond Turkey. Um, And at the time, obviously, there was the 1980 military coup in Turkey, and that shifted their focus even more to Turkey. Um, And a big part of their work is really supporting political prisoners over there, raising money to send over there, engaging politicians here, organising delegations. Um, so their focus was kind of so much on Turkey that they didn't really think too much um, about how to create better relationships with movements here. Um, and, yeah, that is something that they now, I think, reflect on and, and um, question whether that that focus on Turkey uh, could not have been kind of redirected a bit to uh, the
0: country that they live in. And that was international human rights lawyer, researcher and activist Edda Sayan, who was telling us a little bit about her recent article that she published in Jacobin about socialist movement organising amongst migrants from Turkey in Nam, Melbourne. So in our show notes, we'll have a link to the article and we'll have all the information available on our website, 3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. And that's all we have time for today. We'd love to hear any comments or thoughts you might have about the program. So please send us an email to at gmail.com. or you can give us a call at 3CR on 0394198377. And you can also find us on socials on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. So you've been listening to Women on the Line. And we're a national feminist current affairs program produced and presented by a range of women and gender non-conforming broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne. And we're broadcast across the continent on the community radio network. We have funding support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The theme music that you hear in our programs is by Ripley Kavara. All our shows can be downloaded from 3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. You can also listen back to all of our shows on your favourite podcasting app. I'm Scheherazade Law and tune into Women on the Line again next week on your local community radio station.